Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. It's a pleasure to have you with us again. We're going to go a bit macro today and focus on Japan's economy, and to be more specific on Abenomics, which we've mentioned here several times in the past. Some of the questions coming in from listeners have indicated that not everyone is entirely sure what these policies actually mean. Or how well they're doing, if at all. So it's probably worth explaining what Abenomics are all about in a bit more detail. Abenomics is a set of strategies and policies which were first introduced by Japan's reigning Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in late 2012 when he started his current stint. This is actually his second run following his first stint back in 2006, which lasted only 12 months and is generally considered a failure. On the second run, though, he's doing far better, enjoys a generally high approval rating,、um, won several elections already, and is on course to becoming the longest serving prime minister in Japan's history. That is, if he can stay in office until 2021, which isn't a given, mainly due to the fact that he's now embroiled in a bit of a scandal relating to ties that he and his wife have with nationalist groups. And allegations of providing kickbacks to one of these groups in the form of heavily discounted land pricing for one of the group's school campuses, which also seems to have involved some document forgery and cover up attempts by members of the finance ministry. So, not quite clear on whether he'll make that benchmark or not. But putting all this aside, Let's focus on the man's economic policies, the theory behind them, their acceptance, and the results they've managed to achieve so far. So, Abenomics relies on three main strategies, nicknamed the Three Arrows, which are monetary or quantitative easing, QE, which involves increasing the monetary supply in the economy and thereby pushing down value of the Japanese yen, which should theoretically help to increase exports. What many critics refer to as printing money, although the funds aren't used to finance debt directly, but rather to indirectly buy government bonds and other assets through participation in secondary markets. The second arrow is comprised of fiscal policies aimed at injecting that money into the economy with infrastructure projects and other public initiatives, such as purchase of construction bonds, which provides public backing to the real estate sector and other development projects. Coupled with the monetary policy, which was meant to again increase exports, the hope was that the fiscal policies and strategies would encourage private sector investments, increase wages and confidence, reintroduce that elusive healthy inflation target, and start a virtuous economic growth cycle, which has been absent in Japan since the early 90s. The third arrow is structural reforms policies. Which are meant to tackle long term growth hampering issues, such as Japan's current lack of competitiveness in the global market, and also to handle deeply rooted inefficiencies in various sectors, such as agricultural production, which is one of Japan's most important domestic markets. Lastly, these reform policies are meant to improve workforce utilization for economic growth, mainly by increasing female participation in the nation's labor market. Both generally in all areas and more specifically in public and private leadership roles. Now, just announcing these policies has already had the immediate effect of increasing confidence, both consumer oriented domestically and also internationally, from foreign investors and other,、um, and other uh, international entities. 
Equity and property markets shot up, consumer spending increased, and the economy exhibited the first signs of growth in a very long time, which were all excellent signs that this time something might actually be working. The first two arrows were acted upon within Abe's first few weeks in office. He immediately announced a stimulus package of over 10 trillion yen, about $97 billion at today's rates and even more back then when the yen was still trading pretty high. He also appointed a new governor for Japan's central bank, the BOJ, uh, Haruhiko Kuroda, who's been serving in this position ever since and working very closely with Abe himself. Something which, by the way, many people are critical of since it's widely believed that ideally central banks shouldn't be reporting to or subject to governments anywhere in the world. Kuroda was giving a mandate to reintroduce that healthy inflation into the economy with a set target of 2% in two years, and also scheduled two subsequent increases in consumption tax, what's known as GST or VAT in other countries, one for mid-2014 from 5 to 8%, and the next increase up to 10% was originally scheduled for the following year. The first tax hike did come into effect as planned in April 2014, The second has been postponed several times already and is now scheduled for end of 2019. More on the reasons for that a bit later. The 2% inflationary target has also been postponed about 10 times so far, and we're not quite there yet. Shortly after Kuroda came into office, the Bank of Japan also announced a set of radical monetary measures, quantitative easing, QE, first arrow, by which it will buy between 60 to 70 trillion yens worth of bonds per year. That's somewhere between 550 to 660 billion US dollars worth of um, so-called money printing that was later raised to 80 trillion yen, about 750 billion US dollars um, since 2014, and it's been at the same level since then. This was, and still is, the largest QE exercise in history in relation to the size of the economy. Practically, things seem to be going well, and to some extent they still are. By the end of 2013, the Nikkei, Japan's stock market, was up 55%. The yen was down 25% against the US dollar. Abe's approval rating went up to 70%. And the vast majority of people believed that these policies were Japan's best chance to break out of the deflationary cycle it's been trapped in for the past two and a half decades. So is there a catch? And if so, where is it? Well, as in many things in the economic sphere, there's unfortunately a huge gap between macro and micro economies. The main problem in this case lies in two factors. Firstly, although the first so-called two arrows were implemented as promised to various degrees of success, and we'll list those shortly, the third arrow, which turned out to be, as expected, the hardest strategy to implement, hasn't done nearly as well. Structural reforms which require a change of mindset in habits uh, in both public and private societies are tricky things anywhere in the world, and even more so in Japan, which is extremely change-resistant and risk-averse. And although in theory the government and Bank of Japan provided all the needed economic components for increasing wages and exports and investment and spending, in reality, response was and still is far more muted. Companies weren't quick to be convinced that they need to stop sitting on their cash reserves just because the government promised them the economy will improve. And although another policy by the Bank of Japan, which introduced negative interest rates in 2016, 
did force them to invest more, they still haven't increased employee wages to any significant degree. Now, this coupled with the increase in consumption tax, which made goods more expensive for the end user, actually caused people to feel less confident and spend less. Similarly, the inclusion of women in the workforce, particularly in management and public policy positions, hasn't been successful at all. In fact, there are now less women in government than in previous years. And although more of them work as a rule due to a slight increase in daycare facility provisions and other measures, this has more to do with the fact that men's salaries just aren't enough to cover household expenses anymore, since the drop in the value of the yen further increased the prices of imported goods, and Japan depends on imported goods to a very large degree. And as we've seen in the property market, and you can go back and listen to our annual summary episode from a couple of months back, the price hikes that we've seen between 2013 to 16 have ground down to a halt for the same reason. No increase in wages coupled with an increase in living expenses means no increase in rents. And without an increase in rents, property prices can only go up so high, a limit which they now seem to have peaked at. So to wrap up, we'll quickly go through Bloomberg's progress report card for Abenomics, which was published at the end of 2017. That gives us a nice round summary. On the macroeconomic investment of capital front, nominal GDP growth, while not stellar, has definitely been on a stable rise. The ballooning of debt has halted, although it's still one of the highest in the developed world. The budget balance seems to have gone into the green since 2014. Corporate governance has become more transparent and efficient. Agricultural production efficiency and exports as well have improved significantly. And public data has become more available and more accessible. More small and medium businesses are now participating in export efforts, which is a very positive trend. However, the creation of new businesses, as well as general innovation, still require a lot of work. Innovation, in fact, is actually sliding down in comparison with other countries. On the agricultural front, again, there's still far from enough farmland being utilized by efficient operators, as opposed to traditional subsidized and inefficient small family farmers. In particular, rice production costs, which are a main thorn in the side of the agricultural sector here in Japan, need to be drastically cut. And the entire rice production process needs to be improved financially. This isn't an easy task in Japan, which takes great pride in its traditional hand-grown rice farming techniques, regardless of the bottom line. As a result, farmers' income, while slowly rising, is still far below what it should be based on the amount of work put into the sector. Infrastructure projects um, ordered and progressing are on the up, but the ratio of public-private partnerships in Japan, as well as private uh, finance initiatives of infrastructure projects, are still severely lacking. And as long as these projects are heavily subsidized by the public sector, this will continue to hamper growth, according to Bloomberg. Productivity is up in the manufacturing sector, but down 10% in the services sector, which accounts for 70% of the workforce, so still a lot of work to be done there as well. On the employment, education, and globalization fronts, female employment in general, as mentioned, has improved, and unemployment significantly reduced. Labor mobility, however, is stagnating, and there are simply not enough opportunities out there, particularly for women. More students are studying abroad, but Japan's global university rankings is still in the doldrums with syllabuses and educational programs often years or decades behind those in other countries. 
Foreign investment, as well as foreign visitors and workers, are all on the rise, but the lack of proper immigration or mass immigration channels in any significant numbers are not promising for Japan's burning population demographic problem, which is also not being helped by the lack of female life satisfaction in general, which in turn leads to further drops in birth rates. So, all in all, yes, Abenomics has improved things in Japan, certainly in comparison with the last two decades prior to 2012, but there's still a lot of work to be done over a prolonged period of time before it can be labeled successful on the long term. That's it from us today, folks. Hope that gives you a better idea of uh, what this uh, Abenomics buzzword that we keep using is. Hope you found this content of interest. As usual, please feel free to comment, share it with anyone who may find it interesting. We also would really appreciate if you could provide us with a ranking in the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, or wherever you've been streaming or downloading this podcast from. We hope to see you with us next time. And until then, happy investing, everyone.